All right, it is the week of January 15th, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today it's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, not as many topics to cover this week, but still some important things to discuss, including Francis Ngannou is officially a free agent. Now, if you followed this podcast, I've been saying for months that Ngannou was not going to resign with the UFC. Lo and behold, it has come to pass. And I know you've probably heard a bunch of news and analysis about this topic all week. Hopefully, I can cap it off for you with some new insights, especially on the business side. I think some of the media and fans are missing some nuanced details here, and we need to kind of break down what all happened, especially with some of the negotiations and where Ngannou could go next, things of that nature. So we're going to spend a good chunk of time on that, but I promise it's going to be new stuff, not what you've probably heard this past week. Then we're going to talk about Demetrius Johnson's contract numbers. So during a Twitch live stream, uh, DJ revealed some of the purses that he made for fights, including those while he was a champion. Some shocking numbers. We need to take a look at why his contract was set up that way, as well as maybe cut through some of the Zufa and Endeavor myth with how much money champions make, especially a champion who, you know, was kind of number one consensus greatest of all time at one point and and it's still at least in the conversation it's very shocking to me but not that shocking and i'll explain why Uh, then we're going to do our quick hit section and last but not least we need to talk about the ufc's update to their athlete uh, policy code of conduct as well as partnering with u.s integrity which is a firm that they've been using in the james Krause situation also a couple updates with that it all ties together We're going to break down what these changes mean and if it really is going to greatly affect things moving forward. That in mind, got timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so first thing we need to talk about today is Francis Ngannou is officially a free agent, no longer under contract with the UFC. Huge news this past week. Um, I'm sure you've seen and read and heard all about it. This is something that I called... I think in July or August. It's been months, but I was adamant that this was going to happen. Uh, not always right with my predictions on this podcast, but this one I was pretty confident in. Um, and you could check the record. I was very, very adamant that Nganu was not going to with the UFC when his contract came up. A lot of people seem shocked by this, but I think if we look at some of the you know writing on the wall from a business perspective. This was the inevitable outcome. That's why I was so confident that this was going to happen. So to back up a little bit and just talk about how we found out about this news, right? Dana White in a press post-fight press conference, I believe, for Imamov and uh, Strickland, you know, stated, look, we tried to negotiate with Francis. We offered him to be the highest paid heavyweight in the history of the organization, which we'll circle back to. And, you know, we're going to release him. We're not going to do our matching rights period, which is typically a period of a year where the UFC can match any offer that a free agent has, and then the fighter kind of has to go with the UFC. It's like an exclusive matching period thing. And, you know, we're we're just done with them. Uh, Nganu then goes on the MMA hour, a special MMA hour with Ariel Hawani, states that, yeah, they couldn't come to an agreement. He's technically been free since, you know, December 9th or 10th which we kind of knew, right, based on the way the contract was situated and some of the information we we got from 
Claudio was John Nash. We knew he was most likely already a free agent. But Ngannou was respectful about it, wanted to kind of not make a big deal of it and do good faith talks with the UFC, tried to negotiate with them for the past month or so. And, you know, his sunset clause essentially came through, which this is a clause that was added in 2017, almost as a direct result of the antitrust lawsuit against the UFC that states that essentially after a five-year period, regardless of whether you're a champion, whether, you know, you've had injuries, what have you, at a five-year period, the contract ends. So right off the bat, I don't think that the matching period was even applicable there. And Gano didn't either, but I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, from people I've talked to, it's, nope. It, it basically supersedes anything in the contract that says a matching period or anything like that, and you are a free, good-to-go agent. Similar to, to Nate Diaz, right? Um, I mean, well, that one was a little bit different. But this this is a, nope, five years, you, you've served your time type thing, and it's over. And so we got to this point where Ngannou is a free agent. He's trying to talk to the UFC. Um, the UFC says okay, we're going to make you the highest paid heavyweight, but Nganu says during the negotiations uh, with Harry Hawani that he probably could have made around $8 million for, and he wanted three fights. And that was a no-go. So, again, we know from the antitrust lawsuit that Brock Lesnar was the highest paid UFC heavyweight at around $8 million for his one fight when he came back in uh, UFC 200, I believe. So, while Dana can say, oh, the highest paid heavyweight, you know, in the history of the company, that can mean anything from like eight, nine million, 10 million, right? Just slightly more than Brock at, at eight point something. Um, but over the course of several fights, it's not eight million per fight or nine million per fight. That's something that we need to get out of the way. We were not talking about Nganu getting a eight million per fight deal for three or four fights, right? So like 32 million total contract value. Now, this was probably anywhere in the 8 to 10 million range, I guess. Could have been as high as around 15 would be my absolute threshold that I would bet based on what I know and what I've seen. Um, I could be wrong there. I don't, don't hold that to gospel. But again, over the course of many, many fights. And as we've seen, and we'll talk about during Quick Hits a little bit, John Jones re-upped for a new deal that was eight fights. And we've seen Conor McGregor re-up for six or eight fights. Jorge Masvidal, six or eight. They like to, the UFC likes to get you under contract, especially if you're a bigger star, for at least six fights. But I think ideally eight. Right? And that's part of, you know, keeping a champion or a moneymaker or a big name in the sport under contract for as long as possible. Now, with the new sunset clauses, five years is your maximum limit. But it's still a huge deal, especially if a fighter is in their prime or near the end of their prime, right? I mean, for a heavyweight, Ngannou's technically still in his prime years. He's 36, 37. Uh, a lot of heavyweights are, you know, closer to 40 or a little bit over 40. So this is kind of still his prime window, so for him to re-up for the UFC right now, um, uh, that would be the remainder of his prime, most likely. 
And I know, yes, we have younger heavyweights coming in, which is great. Um, the the median and and mean age for heavyweights is dropping, which is fantastic because it's been a division of just old men in in sports terms, not actually super old, but you know, older guys just fighting and and slugging it out. Uh, part of the reason we haven't had a ton of title defenses, right? Um, but this is still a very good opportunity for Nganu physically to make the most out of his training, his athletical peak, that type of stuff. So if he resigns for the UFC, they're not going to let him do a three-fight deal. That's basically what Nganu was told, which makes sense, right? The UFC wants to hold on to fighters longer than that, especially bigger names and champions. Three fights, you can be done with that in a year, two years, and then you have to go through free agency again, which means that almost certainly if Nganu goes through three or four title defenses, let's say let's say he does three fights at $8 million, he wins all those fights against John Jones, um, maybe a rematch against Gon or Stipe, you know, whoever is coming up. Sergei Pavlovich, he beats all of those guys. When that last fight happens and is done, he's going to want even more money, right? I mean, it's only going to be something where he renegotiates for an even higher purse, providing he beats all of his challengers. And ideally, his star will grow because he'll be the heavyweight champion, probably knocking out a lot of these guys, as we've seen Francis do. Not all the time, obviously, his last fight. But still, I mean, could easily be knocking everybody out. And that means the UFC now has to pay even more. UFC doesn't want to do that. UFC needs to cap their fighter costs at 20% or lower especially with rising interest rates and Endeavor's debt getting more and more expensive. They do not want to pay him more in that quick period of time. It also opens the door for other fighters to then say, look what you did with Francis, I want something similar. Right? Um, It's possible you'd be able to keep that contract and those terms under wraps enough that maybe other fighters don't know, but you would think some of the bigger fighters would find out. Right. I'm sure Francis would talk to several people and, you know, obviously management wise um, might have some some people that know each other, et cetera. It would be a whole whole ordeal. So it's not that shocking. Francis turned this down. This was always going to be why Francis turned down an extension with the UFC. The minute he went into the gone fight for, I think was 500 K or something on his last fight of his original contract. It, it was over for me. I, 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 and especially once he talked after the fact, right. Um, I, I thought he was probably going to leave after that happened, but once a couple of other interviews came out where he spoke about what was going on, then I pretty much knew he was done, right? And so, where does Francis go now? We've talked about this before on the podcast. I'm not going to rehash it a ton. He's going to go off and box. Almost certainly do at least one boxing match. He pretty much confirmed that with Ariel Hawani um, in the interview. And he's going to look for an organization, an MMA organization, that allows him to 
have some freedom or have a shorter length of time with them, right? PFL is an option. Bellator is an option. Ryzen, technically an option for a one or two off fights. We've seen them do Floyd Mayweather fights. I'm sure they could pay Francis for eight or $9 million and have him fight, I don't know, someone in an exhibition, maybe Deontay Wilder, maybe, I don't know, some name, and he'll make a ton of money. He's going to make way more money outside the UFC than he ever was going to when he resigned. And I know I've I've had conversations with a couple people on social media and, and in private where a lot of people are saying, no, I mean, this was such a, he, he overplayed his hand. Francis didn't play his leverage right. It's what, it's terrible. No, there, there's no way he doesn't make more money per fight somewhere else. Now, is he going to make, let's say, eight or nine million dollars for sure for one fight outside of the UFC? No, that, that's not guaranteed. But again, if the UFC was asking for six to eight fights, and let's say, let's say they they really went after him and offered fifteen million, right? Fifteen million dollars. Let's say it's six fights. That's the best scenario I could possibly see that Francis got on a contract offer, and I really don't think that's what he got, you're still looking at a little less than $3 million per fight. So all Francis has to do to make more money technically is go box or go to PFL or do whatever, you know, go somewhere and be paid $3 million for just one fight. That's not insurmountable by any means. A lot of these organizations could afford to do that. It, it's it's shocking to me that people seem to think, okay, he was going to get paid more than Brock Lesnar. He he must have been getting so much money. No, he, he was not going to make four or five times what Brock Lesnar was making. He was not going to make eight million per fight like Brock Lesnar was making. I. I cannot imagine that that was the offer the UFC gave him. That would be by far the largest contract that any fighter in the UFC had gotten. That'd be more than McGregor, I'm pretty sure. There's no way they did that. And so, yeah, it it's not shocking for him to want to go somewhere else. Now, I know another big thing in these negotiations where... He, Francis has been lauded for this. A lot of people saying like, yeah, he's doing the right thing is Francis said in the interview with Ariel Hawani that he was negotiating for health insurance, a fighter advocate, uh, better fighter rights, all this stuff, right? Uh, He's been praised heavily for this, but it is important to take this with somewhat of a grain of salt. I'm not saying he didn't actually advocate for this and these weren't deal breakers for him and he doesn't want to pay it forward, but one, he would have gone into this knowing that those demands or those you know wants were never going to be fulfilled, right? Um, and two, while we've heard him speak on these things a little bit before his contract came up, it's not like he's been super outspoken about these things, right? It wasn't until he ran into contract issues with the UFC that all of a sudden all this stuff comes up. So it is possible, and I'm not saying this is the case, but it is very possible that this was more of kind of a marketing tactic, right? 
yeah, I asked for those things. I knew I wasn't going to get them, but hey, it makes me paints me as kind of a you know fighter for other fighters, and and paints me in a great light as I'm exiting out of the world's most prestigious MMA organization. Gives me good publicity, shows where I'm at, all that stuff. And I'm sure there are, you know, things to be said here, right? That it wasn't all about money for Francis. I I do believe that. But I'm not saying it also was all about the other stuff either, right? I think think if they really come back and they say, you know what, $30 million. None of the other stuff you want, $30 million over six fights or whatever. Or, you know, let's say three fights for $8 million. What Francis was talking about. I think... uh, Francis says, okay, you don't hear any of that other stuff. Because keep in mind, the additional cost of just fighter health insurance would be huge, right? You got about around 600 fighters on the roster. You'd have to have a plan where you're paying for all of those fighters. And as, you know, as a technical employer then, which then messes up a ton of stuff with the antitrust lawsuit, because if you're offering those benefits, you're essentially conceding that you are an employer and uh, your independent contractors are actually your employee contractor type things. The cost would be astronomical. It would be far cheaper from from the antitrust lawsuit perspective alone for the UFC to just pay Francis like, 30 mil than to concede yeah we'll give you health insurance which would torpedo a lot of their uh it, it torpedo i think a good portion of their antitrust lawsuit case which would is still while unlikely to win um the biggest threat to ufc's grip on the market right now so there's no way any of that stuff is going to happen fighter advocate sure you know, you, you pay for a kind of middleman to advocate for fighters. Yeah, he could do that. And it costs some money. But again, if you have it for every single fighter, that would add up. Um, you know, you you could make some of those work. The health insurance one, though, that's, you know, that's a huge, huge issue. Which, um, again, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more on the betting scandal, too. Because I know there's been some videos out there about health insurance and all that, like, Got to understand, UFC gives health insurance to their fighters in any capacity, in any capacity. And they have essentially admitted that they're an employer and fighters are employees. At least that's a very good chance that's how it would be construed in court. So fighter health insurance is never going to happen. If you got a union together, sure. If you got the Ali Act, which has, I think, you know, a couple ways around that, maybe. But I mean, Ali Act is a whole nother beast. So yeah, that that was never gonna happen. So circling back to these negotiations where Francis is going. Um the other thing I've heard from several people is this was a terrible job by the UFC. How could they let their heavyweight champion go? He's such a big draw. Francis is not a proven draw. It, it, I'm not saying he can't be. I'm not saying that you know he's not on his way to being a draw, but he is not a proven draw, at least to the most casual to your fan. 
it's important to remember that we as media and fans, hardcore fans of the sport, live in a bubble, right? And we can't always see past that sometimes. I've seen several media members and people talk about, you know, how did they mess this up? Like, that's like, he's such a big name and all this stuff. He's a big name, but he's not he's not drawing Brock Lesnar numbers. He's not drawing McGregor Rousey numbers. Not even close. From 2022, and I had a long discussion about this with a couple people on social media that don't seem to, to grasp this. In 2022, we have one, one pay-per-view where we kind of know the numbers. That's confirmed. That's it. Any other pay-per-view numbers you see especially if they're exact, what complete BS. We have one single event where legitimate sources stated that Oliveira versus Gaethje was around 400K buys. We don't know the exact number, et cetera, but that's it. We have one number for one event. We also know, though, in that article, that at the time, it was the highest UFC pay-per-view of the year. So that was in May. Nganu versus Gone was in January. By that fact, and again, this is Sports Business Journal. You have I have people that are challenging the Sports Business Journal's credibility, and I'm just like, you, I, I can't, I can't. Um, providing those numbers are accurate, which again, I believe they they are, because they tend to do very very good work at SBJ. That means that Nganu versus Gone did not break 400K. Now, maybe it was 380, maybe it was 390, maybe it was 300. Who knows? And remember that that was the first event after a price increase to about $75 a pay-per-view, right? So I'm sure numbers took a hit from that. I'm sure they did. But Nganu was not so much of a draw that Everyone, you know, was clamoring to see him, that the casual fans were willing to throw down that money, all that. We've not seen him draw above 400K, to my knowledge. I think the first deep base fight was also around 380 or 300 or something like that. And those aren't bad numbers. I'm not saying those are bad numbers at all. But it's not... In Adesanya, right? When Adesanya had first become champion and was, you know, really at his peak, he was drawing in the 800K range. And yes, during the pandemic, when everything got a bump, especially with the UFC being the first sport back and, and, you know, kind of taking that leader position, um, we saw a lot of high pay-per-views that I think you run them now, they're they're a lot less. I mean, Adesanya for one, right? Rematch Robert Whitaker and that pay-per-view obviously did less than 400K because it was in February of 2022 and we know Oliveira versus Gaethje was the highest. We have no idea what happens June and beyond for last year, but Nganu didn't fight June and beyond, so it doesn't really matter for this particular discussion. He's not some major, major draw. He's a big name within the sport, but he's not pulling in so many casual viewers and those seven segments that the UFC... Sorry, I put up my one hand. Seven... (laughs) segments that the UFC designates their customers into, he is not bringing in the farthest on the casual side on a regular basis. Because if he was, it would be 600, 700K at the minimum. 
that does not mean he can't go out and make a ton of money. If he does an exhibition with Tyson Fury, if he fights Deontay Wilder, any biggish name in boxing, it's still going to be intriguing, right? Because he left as the champion. He left as this knockout machine for the most part. And we wouldn't see the kind of, you know, wrestling back and forth that we saw when he fought gone. Not to mention his legs were just destroyed <laughs> when he fought gone and he still won. But yeah, it's not it, it's not that it's not intriguing. And he can still make a ton of money, but he'll make it as the B side. Right? Let's say you did, first of all, in MMA, who would you even have Nganu fight right now? Right? Outside of the UFC, um, could have him fight Bader. Uh, you, you could look at having Nemkov move up, I guess, and Bellator. You could do um, PFL champ, right? Uh, Anti Elijah. Um, uh, I mean, you've got a couple of options, but no one that it's going to be like, oh man, I got to see this fight. And if Ngannou, let's say, headlines a PFL event or a um, Bellator event or what have you, I'm sure it'll get more viewers than normal, but I don't expect like a crazy pop, right? You're not going to see this gigantic movement. It's, in MMA anyway, if he's the A-side, he's not the most proven draw yet, which means he needs to increase his, you know, drawing power. And the only way you do that is either by winning on the most watched and most prestigious, which I'm not using prestigious as like, oh, they're the best in the world. You know, you know what I'm saying with prestigious. It's the premier MMA organization, which is clearly the UFC, or you go do something like boxing. And Ganu again has talked about boxing forever. He talked about wanting to be a boxing champion originally before he got into MMA. He's going to go box at least once. He might even go box once and then come back to the UFC. That's very, very possible. I would lean at this point, maybe no, any like at least this year. But once, you know, kind of things toned down and what have you, I could easily see him coming back. Especially if his boxing bout doesn't go super well and then he's not getting the offers he wants. You could easily see him back in the UFC. But he's going to go box. And he's going to go make a ton of money in boxing. Wilder versus Ngannou, I guarantee sells at least 200, 300K and he'll get a much higher purse for just the fight alone plus pay-per-view buys. Why would he not do that? Boxing has a much, much higher revenue share for fighters. It's much more in their favor. All he needs is any sort of name he does not have to be the A-side. If he is the A-side, I bet he does okay, but if he's the B-side, much better for him. If he gets Fury, he gets Ruiz, he get whoever, just any sort of name. That's way more money in one fight than he was ever going to get in the UFC. Is it going to be more than the entire contract they offered him? Possibly not, but it's going to be more per fight for sure. And I would wager that he probably is getting more than the entire contract he was offered. This was a no-brainer for Ngannou. Why people are so shocked by that? It This was a no-brainer. Leave, go box, can always come back. 
And yeah, everybody's saying, oh, we're missing Ngannou versus John Jones. Maybe, but we'll see. Give it a year or two. If they're both still fighting, Ngannou's boxing, you know, he's had a couple of fights. He's lost him. He might come back. But this is a window into more financial security and wealth than, than Ngannou has ever had. He has enough of a name in MMA. He walked away as the UFC heavyweight champion. There's going to be some interest for him in boxing. And again, it doesn't have to be gangbusters for him to still make more money in one boxing fight than he would have per fight in the UFC. So this is, as long as Ngannou had a head on his shoulders and didn't have some chip where he's like, I got to be the best heavyweight MMA fighter, all this, this was always the inevitable outcome. And from the UFC perspective, right, from a cost perspective, Ngannou isn't a super proven draw, so you can't throw $32 million or whatever at him. If Ngannou was pulling in Brock Lesnar numbers, I guarantee they would have offered him much, much more money. Maybe they would have offered him a... 30 to $40 million contract, but he's not pulling in those numbers. If he was a massive pay-per-view star, especially since he'd be the only active one right now, there's no way they don't throw a significant amount of money at him. They still want to lock him up for a longer contract, right? Six to eight fights, so that might have been a deal breaker for Ngannou, but I think they would have really gone all out price-wise. But that's not the case. And again, given the fighter cost cap that you, you know, pitched to Endeavor when they bought you is, hey, we cap fighter costs at 20%. It's in your pitch deck for selling the company. And Endeavor's rising debt from interest rates, which 40% of their debt, variable interest. Fed just keeps hiking up that interest rate. We've seen a layoffs all over the place, mostly due to that debt and anticipations that the next couple of years are going to be rough. You can't afford to throw a bunch of extra money at a heavyweight that might draw decent numbers and may eventually turn to a star, but it's a risk. Especially when you also believe, you know, you're the UFC and you're the machine and you can make a new star. John Jones comes back and he's the heavyweight champion. New star. Cyril Gaon was pulling in some good numbers before he lost to Ngannou. Maybe he beats John Jones. He's a, he's a big star now. And I've said before, I don't know that that's going to happen, right? I mean, same thing happened to Ngannou where I think he was on track to being a megastar and then Stipe just derailed that completely by beating him, especially in the fashion he beat him. And Ngannou never really recovered from a drawing perspective. I expect that could be the case with Gone. It's a closer fight, but it wasn't the most exciting. I wouldn't be shocked if Gone kind of, you know, has a following in the MMA space, has some following in, you know, France and some other areas, but it's not, you know, not this major, major star. Right now, the biggest active draw in the UFC is probably Oliveira. I mean, I don't know if you've, seen the video of him, you know, in Brazil where he's basically surrounded by a ton of security and it's a whole thing. Like, he's really, you know, the biggest active star. I mean, obviously, if McGregor comes back or if somehow Rousey came back, that'd be a whole for Lesnar. Obviously, things change, but I don't expect any of them to come back soon. And 
given Izzy kind of falling off, losing his belt, right? Um, Jones coming back against Gone might pop some numbers, but he had kind of dropped in his his popularity um, prior to that. I, I think Oliveira might, as of right now, be the biggest draw, which is wild to say. I mean, I'm happy for him, but it's just wild to say. Wouldn't have said that a year ago, two years ago. Stars can be made. Star draws can can happen, right? It all only takes one or two incidents. All of a sudden, you're you're really look at Jorge Masvidal, look at Charles Oliveira, both guys that were kind of you know journeymen or gatekeepers, and then had big moments, made it their way to the title, and pulled in some big numbers. But Ngannou isn't there yet, and the UFC knows that, right? They offered him what they thought was probably a lot of money is making him the highest paid UFC heavyweight. But, yeah, you know, they're not going to take that extra step and that extra risk, especially with Endeavor's debt load right now. If Endeavor is flush with cash, maybe you take that risk. But you're you're dealing with a massive amount of variable debt, bad macroeconomic conditions, or at least outlook of economic conditions, you're not going to take that extra risk. Not right now. I think this is a win-win for both, to be honest, based on those facts. And I think people saying that one side blew it, the other side, I, I don't know. This was always the inevitable outcome. Always. It's best for both of them. And Ganu gets to go have his massive payday and box. UFC, yes, loses their heavyweight champion, and it sucks, but they're not on the hook for, you know, millions per fight on somebody that may not being a draw for them at a time when their parent company is battening down the hatches to make sure that they're going to be good through this perceived economic downturn. I I do not think it's going to hurt the UFC nearly as much as people are saying. I really don't. I mean, this isn't the first time somebody's left, right? Like, I, here's my prediction. I want to know your guys' thoughts on it. I think six months from now, we're not talking about Francis Ngannou and you know being the rightful UFC heavyweight champ. Maybe a little bit more in six months because the fight's in March. So by the end of the year, let's do that. By the end of the year, we're not saying anything about Ngannou's the rightful champ and all this other stuff. We're saying whoever wins the Jones gone fight and whoever I would imagine they might defend again this year. Um, I think we're looking at them as the new king of MMA heavyweight. And a lot of media are saying, no, you can't do that. But yeah, yeah, we can. That's, that's how the sport works. It's very easy. How, how easily we forget in this sport as fans, right? You can't tell me if Jones doesn't beat Gone that all of a sudden it's like, well, who knows how Jones would have done against Ngannou, right? Jones has this huge, illustrious record. He's probably the number one heavyweight. Or if Gone beats Jones and then continues to fight and he looks improved and they're like, well, I think this new version of Gone would have easily beaten Ngannou, especially how close their fight was. Right? It's easy to change that narrative. And by the end of the year, I think the narrative will be changed and we'll all be like, all right, whatever. Francis is doing his thing, but Those are my thoughts on it. 
I'd love to know your thoughts. Are you excited to see Nganu do boxing? Do you think the UFC or Nganu botched this in some way? Again, I think this was a mutually beneficial outcome for both parties. I think a lot of people are missing the costs of certain things like health insurance for fighters or Nganu's drawing power, any of that stuff. Um, I think this is the best way for Nganu to get his major payday and the UFC to keep the machine rolling, especially with a fight where, depending on how it plays out, could easily turn, you know, whoever that is into the new undisputed MMA heavyweight king with a lot less pushback than we're seeing right now. Those are my thoughts. Would love to hear your guys' because it's it's a big deal, but it, there's a reason I called this six months ago. Just saying. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is Demetrius Johnson on a live Twitch stream, I believe it was, um, talked about his fighter purses on the attempts to be a champion, being a non-champion, and then what he made as a champ. Uh, we had... In 2011, in his fight against Dominic Cruz for the Bantamweight champion, he was 14 to show, 14 to win. Uh, then he had another fight on that. Then he did Ian McCall, I believe, at 20 and 20. And then when he became a champ and fought Benavidez, he was 125 um, and 50. So 125 to show, 50 to win, no pay-per-view points. And Johnson goes on to say, you know, that was a big sticking point for him because he wasn't making a lot of money on, you know, something like a McGregor pay-per-view or some other pay-per-view where he wasn't the headliner, but he would get a fair amount of pay-per-view points. And part of the reason that the DJ TJ Dillashaw uh, fight never happened was because he asked for about a million dollars and they said no, and it was a whole thing. So a couple things to break down about this, right? Some people are shocked by this. I'm not terribly shocked, um, especially back in 2011. Fighters were not getting paid super well. Fighter, fighter pay was far lower, right? Revenue for the UFC at the time was low very low um so it's not shocking to think that and as ufc revenue has grew, grown so has fighter pay as long as it's kept that 20 percent to 80 percent ratio where fighter costs are capped to 20 percent, fighters are going to get more money as the ufc makes more money it's just the revenue share that's more off right um the other thing to consider here is dj was pioneering a new division Right, he was the first flyweight champion and pretty much held the belt until he lost to Cejudo. Um, and there wasn't many other flyweight fights happening in other promotions. It, it was really pioneering a new division that has now since grown and gotten more respect. Right, obviously, we're on Figueredo versus Moreno four, which has just been instant classics and great. But at the time, DJ was, you know, destroying these guys. And I don't want to say making the division look bad, but in a way, he was he was such a level above, right? That it looked like okay, DJ's crushing cans. Even though these guys are very good fighters, right? A lot of people that he fought, right? Benavidez, um, Ray Borg, you know, all these guys, good fighters. Ian McCall, like very good fighters, but DJ was such just on a different level that it made it look like, okay, he's this dominant, crazy good champion. And the division didn't have enough credibility at the time. I think that really hurt things. Now here's the other thing that we need to talk about with these numbers. Um, 
they haven't changed that much since DJ left, right? Figueredo just recently had to kind of beg after getting the belt back from Reno, like, I need I need pay-per-view points. I went went out and had a war with Moreno, went to a draw, was, you know, fight of the year candidate, and I need pay-per-view points. Was getting, I think, 300K flat, which is around what DJ was getting when he left, from what I remember. Uh, I mean, they're still not making a ton of money. And we also know when Demetrius Johnson was headlining cards that the ratings were not the best, right? On the fight nights where he was headlining, you didn't get super high pops and ratings. And I don't believe he ever headlined a pay-per-view. He was always on the undercard, but that's probably because they looked at the metrics and said, oh, this isn't you know, what we want to do, right? We don't want to... We do not want to put up a fight as the main attraction when we know it's not going to sell super well. And this was also during another important, very important fact, is this was also pre-Endeavor buyout of the UFC and the ESPN deal, which is... The biggest factor, in my opinion, right? Um, this is when pay-per-view buys were very important to the overall health of the UFC. And so taking a risk and putting DJ at the headlining spot against, you know, especially an up-and-coming guy that maybe a number seven, number eight ranked because DJ had already run through a lot of the top contenders, not what you want to do when you need a lot of that variable revenue. I mean, this is back when I think it was UFC 214 with Jones versus Cormier did around 850K buys, which was great. And then the next pay-per-view, you had Nunez versus um, Shevchenko too. And they headlined International Fight Week and it did like 100K buys or something. I mean, that's that not what the UFC wanted to see at the time. And if they saw metrics where they thought that's what was going to happen with DJ headlining a pay-per-view, they weren't going to do it. It's, again, not crazy shocking, to be honest, um, that they never put him in that position and that they weren't willing to give him pay-per-view points because at the time, the UFC believed, you know, he's not, you know, a draw. Now, things have changed drastically, right? Like, as the flyweight division has gotten more popular, as we've seen these epic fights between Moreno and Figueredo. Um, it, it's built up a name and credibility for the division. We've seen, you know, new contenders rise. Uh, you've got exciting guys like Kai Kara France, Brandon Roy Vall. The, the division has finally filled out. And with that, now you have more interest. I think if DJ comes back now, he probably gets a much more favorable contract. Not only because the ESPN deals in place, but because I think there's more interest in the flyweight division than there ever was when DJ was champion and just running through people, right? Um, I mean, look at with Cejudo, right? He ends up beating DJ, then beating TJ. And it's it's a whole thing. And, and then beating Morais at Bantamweight. I mean, I think that, again, they were going to shut down the flyweight division. And then Cejudo won both those bouts and essentially... I think they saw enough interest after that happened. Well, suddenly it's like, okay, like we actually have enough to keep this going. And it must have been good enough that they they have no plans of shutting it down now, right? But they were talking about just closing and shuttering the division. They were letting go of fighters and saying, like, yeah, we're just going to close the fight with division until Cejudo pulled that all off. 
So during DJ's reign, not super popular, not doing that stuff. Despite him being, again, consensus in the media as the the goat at one point, and a lot of fans thinking, hardcore fans thinking that way as well, he, they weren't drawing in casual viewers. And it's not fair, right? Like, that's just kind of how it goes. Uh, and people always say, you know, how could that happen, right? Where there was so little interest when you had a guy that was so amazing, just was running through people, it was unreal. How could that happen when then you see heavyweight fights in the co-main or main event of almost every fight night card? Like, what's going on? I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. For whatever reason, on the most casual segment side of customer that consumes MMA, heavyweights are more attractive. I have my own theory as to why this is. Uh, I have no idea if it's right. I have no real data to back it up other than anecdotal evidence. But, you know, there's a reason the heavyweight champ is called the baddest man on the planet. It's, I think, psychologically, there's something about, okay, if someone is a heavyweight champion or a heavyweight fighter, that means they could hypothetically beat up all the other fighters, right? Like, it didn't matter if you were light heavyweight or middleweight or welterweight. Like, this guy is... If you're the heavyweight champ, you are the baddest man on the planet because if you fought all the other champions, you're probably winning. That's what I've heard casual fans tell me. And when you think about it, it's like, I guess that's probably true. Maybe. I don't know. Like, it depends on the fight, I guess. But it's, you know, especially with the way some people weight cut, it's like, eh, well, maybe. But from a casual perspective, I that's my theory as to why that is. But that's why you'll always see heavyweights in the co-main event was like, you know, Chase Sherman versus Jake Collier or something, or Andre Olovsky versus someone. It's like, what? You know, that's also why heavyweights, I think, made so much money back in the day, right? Mark Hunt, Alistair Overeem, Andre Olovsky made more money than DJ ever did as a champion. And they are, Andre Olovsky is still making, um, so he made 100K less for his last fight than Francis Ngannou. Now, again, Francis had turned down multiple new contract offerings from the UFC, et cetera. But like there has to be a correlation with casual viewership and heavyweights. Regardless of the reasons for it, there's no other reason business-wise you would do that. You would continually put heavyweights up there. You'd pay them more money than the rest of the divisions. There is a, there is a data correlation between heavyweights and casual viewership. There has to be. That's, yeah. But again, not super shocked by DJ's numbers. Um, I think he makes more money now, but it, it it highlights the stark difference between pre-endeavor and post-endeavor too, right? I think DJ makes at least 300k now um, as champion with pay-per-view points, just like Figueredo has. Uh, and I think I wouldn't be surprised with DJ's run if he did that run in today's era. I wouldn't be surprised if he's making closer to half a mil, right? Anywhere from three to five hundred k plus, plus pay per view points. Not only because Endeavor has that secure um, fixed revenue, as if he were to pull that off now, there's far more interest in the division. I think it would make him a much bigger name, and that is unfortunately, you know, kind of the drawback to being a pioneer in any particular area, right? You think about how much money Randy Couture made. Or even Chuck Liddell or, or, you know, some of these guys that were the first to do this, 
they made pennies compared to what champions are making now. And it's, you know, it, it sucks, but it is what it is. That's part of being a pioneer in a sport. You, you're building the name, you're growing the brand. And in particular with the UFC and the business structure they set up, I mean, obviously Randy tried to take them to court, to all this other stuff. It's, yeah, it, it's, they fought and took damage, did all these things and made, you know, a lot less money in the cage than fighters nowadays. They had some other benefits, right? I mean, especially when UFC kind of hit their height of, of popularity, their first out of popularity, right? And kind of boomed in 20 or early, late 2000s, early 2010s, that type of stuff. Um, you know, around then they had sponsorships, big sponsorships, right? Um, John Jones had a sponsorship with Nike before he did the whole hit and run thing. Um, you know, and, and that made a ton of money for them. That was a huge income source for them. So it wasn't like they were, you know, starving necessarily, but it, it's just a natural progression. I guarantee you 20 years from now, fighters are going to be making more money than fighters are today. Now, obviously inflation and things of costs have gone way up since then too. That might happen again in 20 years, but it, it's just how it plays out. So not shocked since DJ was essentially a pioneer of this division that he got paid so well. Should he have gotten paid more? Almost certainly from his perspective, yes. From the UFCs, you know, they wanted to keep the cost down. They didn't see enough draw from him. That's what happened. So don't be shocked if you hear about, as, you know, time goes on, you hear about champions in the 2010s and, you know, especially the lower weight classes making not that much money. I don't know what Dominic Cruz made as champ, you know, back in 2010 through 2015, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was also not much better than DJ, right? Um, it kind of is what it is. It's it's an unfortunate thing, but it shows you that Zufa myth of, oh, everybody's getting paid all stuff. That's not, not the case. We have actual numbers. I've been saying this for a while. I mean, it is what it is. Let me know your thoughts on DJ's pay. If you thought it was egregious, if you thought it kind of makes sense, given the fact he was pioneering a whole new division, if you think he'd make more now, love to hear that. Um, or if you think maybe he wouldn't, I'd love to hear that argument too. But yeah, it's it it's a bummer for DJ. He's probably making a lot more than one now. Hopefully he's happy. Uh, but would be interesting to see him come back to the UFC. I would love to see that. Well, I don't know that that ever happens, but never say never, right? All right, Quick Hits is up next. A couple things we've got to go through here. Uh, John Jones has signed a new eight-fight deal. Uh, his manager says that he is now the second highest-paid fighter in the UFC, almost certainly behind Conor McGregor. Um, not surprising here, right? Uh, don't know what the actual financial number is, but I'm sure it's similar to what we talked about with Ngannou's contract. Uh, maybe he makes 10 or 15 million. I know before the first time that Ngannou was offered to Jones, uh, right? He had stated publicly that, you know, he kind of wanted Deontay Wilder money or, 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 White said he wanted Deontay Wilder money and he said, I'd take half that. And I believe the purse for Wilder at the time was 30 million. So Jones was probably looking for 15 mil. Um, again, I, I don't know what the actual number is here, uh, but we know based on previous John Jones payouts from the UFC antitrust lawsuit, at maximum, he could have only been making five or six million a couple of places. The most he ever would have made for one fight possibly made and it's not 
necessarily true that Jones made that much was seven million, right? Um, so I think 15, uh, 15, 20 million, eight fights plus pay-per-view points wouldn't be shocking. I could see up to 25, right? So he ends up making, you know, around, uh, what is that? Three, 3.5, 4 million a fight. I could see that. I think that would make him well-paid uh, and cross eight fights, you get 20, 24, 25 million. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in that range of 15, 25 million. Don't think it's much more than that, to be honest. Could be. I could be wrong there, but remember again, over the course of eight fights, on a per-fight basis, it's not astronomical. He's not making 10 million a fight, right? There, I cannot see that happening. Um, I just can't. It's They might say it's, you know, oh, it's $25 million contract. Like, that's great, but how many times you got to fight? Oh, eight. So you're actually only making three point some million per fight as a base. He gets pay-per-view points on top of that. So it's not like, you know, he's not getting other money, but it, it's not some crazy number. If you hear a number in the future, that's like, oh, 25, 30, whatever million. Keep in mind how many fights that are tied to that. That's, that's all I'll say there. Uh, next, we got to talk about PFL is adding women's flyweights. Uh, so they're, doing women's flyweights uh, on their new challenger series, which they're really pushing, uh, which I think is a great idea. And I also think flyweight is probably the best division you could add in terms of a new tournament format. Bantamweight has been kind of dead for years, right? Uh, Strawweight, you've got a fair amount, but even then you've got some good competitors that are in that window of, you know, they fought in either 135 or 115 for such a long time because there was no real flyweight division outside of Bellator and they wanted, you know, to be in the UFC. Uh, we've seen a ton of people from both 135 in the UFC and 115 move into the 125 range because it makes sense for them. I am, am very adamant that that's Shevchenko's natural weight. She said it was for the longest time. Um, and that she was fighting bigger girls at 135. I believe that's probably true. But, um, yeah, I, I think 125 is where you're going to get the widest pool of possible talent. So even though Bellator and the UFC will continue to sign flyweights, um, it will be tempting for women to go into a $1 million tournament, right? Because just like we were talking about with DJ's contract, a lot of the women's champions don't make a ton of money either, right? I don't know the specifics on them, but I know they're they're on the lower end compared to like UFC heavyweights or the higher weight classes, um, stuff like that. So a million dollars in a tournament where, you know, you're kind of fighting probably good flyweights, but not the best in the world since a lot of them are still under contract with other promotions between Bellator and UFC. I mean, that's going to be very tempting for up and coming girls or for, again, journeyman gatekeepers that have kind of been stuck, right? It's it's hard not to see that and say, wow, like I can make way more money doing this tournament than I could if I fought in the UFC or Bellator. I, so I, I think it's a smart move. Um, last, we have to talk about slap fighting. Uh, I'm not going to give this a huge segment. That's why I want to bring in the quick hits. Ratings are in for slap fighting. 295,000.1 uh, in the coveted 18 to 49 demo. That is not good. Um, 
still better than what one championship did uh, when they were on TNT after an AEW leaded and AEW's rating was closer to 969,000. So you had a huge drop off. I also think that because this was the premiere, right? Premieres tend to have more viewership and then kind of fall as time goes on. Uh, this is not the type of premiere rating you want. I don't know that it's necessarily tied to the Dana White incident. I'm sure that brought negative publicity, obviously, but I, I just think that this is not something that people really have an appetite for, to be honest. Um, would not be shocked if it's getting canceled. That's a not-so-bold prediction that this is canceled after season one easily. Uh, they also talked about a pay-per-view, right? So they're going to do similar to kind of fights where you do slap fighting and then you go to a, a final pay-per-view event. That's There's no way that sells well, in my opinion. Um, social media viewership and some other stuff is still up there. So maybe this turns around, but I, I don't see it. I think this is pretty, pretty terrible. All right. And no, for the record, I did not watch slap fighting. Uh, no, thanks. I saw some highlights. Uh, I, was, I was good. Um, all right. Those are the quick hits. Let me know if I missed anything. Uh, but yeah, that's all we got for this week. All right. Last thing we're going to talk about on today's show is the UFC has made some enhancements, as they call it, to their athlete code of conduct policy and partnered with U.S. Integrity to kind of ensure that a James Krause situation doesn't happen again. Uh, this past Thursday in a press release, they announced, quote, uh, we have made enhancements to our UFC athlete conduct policy to more clearly express the prohibition against any UFC athlete from placing any wagers directly or through a third party on any UFC match, including placing wagers on themselves. UFC Executive Vice President and General Counsel Richie T. McKnight said, uh, and quote, we have also expanded our discussion of so-called UFC insiders to make clear that these same prohibitions against wagering apply to an athlete's coaches, managers, handlers, athletic trainers, and other individuals affiliated with the athletes or UFC, and that violations by these insiders may result in disciplinary action against related contract athletes. Um, they also announced again this uh, partnership with U.S. Integrity, and um, they talk about the Ath Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, quote, throughout the process, we have had productive discussions with the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, or the AGCO, to address the concerns AGCO expressed to their operators. We have made enhancements to our policy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, finally, we reiterated the expectation that our contract athletes will come to us to report any matters that might raise integrity concerns. We thank the AGCO for their cooperation, and we look forward to continuing to work with them to ensure the integrity of our for the benefit of our athletes and our fans. So, again, what does this all mean? Um, oh, one other quote I need to throw in here. Sorry. U.S. Integrity will help us strengthen our existing best practices by applying their expertise in data intelligence to proactively identify irregular bout-level wagering patterns. This information can inform UFC's response and can be preemptively shared with sports books. That's key. We'll come back to that. Who can make informed decisions as to whether or not halt betting on a particular bout. So a couple of things from this, right? Um, first off, what this is really doing, we know that the AGCO um, in Ontario uh, and, and provinces of Canada had been much more strict about halting wagering on UFC events. That's now lifted. Um, Aaron Bronstetter and Cole Shelton, who's been on top of this, both of them have, uh, and you know, announced this past week that you can now place bets on fights again, given the step the UFC has taken. 
the steps the UFC has taken, meaning this. They've updated their code of conduct policy, which again, that code of conduct policy has not been really enforced. It's been kind of a lame duck document where, hey, we brought this out in 2012 um, against Matt Mitrione and some of the other things that are happening, and then we kind of forgot about it because whatever. Or we enforced it when we felt like it, uh, which was just when Kraus happened. But they've now put in certain language that appears to assert, at least in AGCO's eyes, as well as other commissions, that, okay, we are going to take this seriously, right? The update to that language, because they already updated their language once the Kraus News first hit, right? With a couple of things. They've now seemingly put in additional language that I would imagine lawyers and commissions take more seriously. And it's more enforceable. It's all a show is really what it is. It's it's making AGCO happy so that they'll allow wagering on UFC fights again. That's that's really all this is. Um, and I do believe it will be enforced more heavily given the crowd situation and everything that's happening there. Um, but again, it's not something where the UFC is, you know, scrambling and, and losing their mind. And all of a sudden we're going to see these sweeping upon sweeping changes. The only thing that's happened here is that fighters, trainers, all these other people are, are banned from betting on events, which is a big change. Don't get me wrong, but that is still essentially, that's something that they did right after the Kraus thing got blown wide open. That was really the whole Kraus story, right? That was the big change that was always going to come out of this, is they were going to have to tighten these things up, be more strict with it, et cetera, contain it, and cur- curtail any you know, idea that UFC committed negligence on, or malfeasance with the betting scandal. That it was all James Kraus, his people, which... Looks like Jeff Molina also has been roped into that a little bit more. Um, he's been suspended, and it seems, you know, there are quotes stating that he is pretty heavily involved in this as well, so he may be out of the UFC. Um, I, I would imagine, again, at the end of this whole investigation, uh, these guys are banned from the sport. At least Kraus. Molina maybe a stiffer fine. Yeah, Kraus... Good chance he's going to jail given some of the things he's done. We'll see. You've got to wait for the investigation to play it. But that all being said, uh, partnering with U.S. Integrity, right? The specific quote here that I want to go back and call out is their expertise in data intelligence to pre- proactively identify irregular bout level wagering patterns to inform and preemptively be shared with sports books who can make decisions about halting. So this essentially means, hey, we've hired some people that have set up algorithms to look at unusual wagering patterns. And if they hit a certain threshold, it's going to immediately send out notifications to um, all these sports books and then sports books can make the decision themselves. Do we want to halt action? Not because obviously sports books want to make money. You don't like halting action. It's not a good time. Uh, but this sets up a watchdog and sets up thresholds that will prevent something like what, what happened with the huge swing from the first round TKO of uh, the fight where all this kind of, you know, was blown open. Again, I have to stress here that, yes, this is a 
significant change. It shows the UFC taking steps to kind of ensure that they are within regulation and that they are free and clear as an organization. But I've seen some videos and some comments out there um, talking about, you know, what this is eventually going to lead to that, you know, fighters, there's one out there, um, you know, the UFC has a gambling problem. First and foremost, I think it's well done. And I think there's a lot of great points in it. So I, this is not a, a bash on that. But I think it misses some of the some of the assumptions it jumps to, and it misses some of the business side issues, which include, you know, this isn't going to lead to fighters demanding healthcare. I mean, fighters have been asking for healthcare for a while. That's kind of moving forth, but the UFC is not going to provide it, as we talked about with the Engano situation, right? That torpedoes their antitrust lawsuit case. It's not going to happen. And yes, fighters are making a fair amount of money off of this stuff. We're trying to make a fair amount of money. We don't know how much they actually make. Krauss was the only one that bragged about how much money he made and all, all this stuff. There, is, there aren't a lot of fighters that are coming out and saying, man, I made a ton of money gambling on fights. We knew it was widespread, but we also don't know what they ended up making, right? Like, yeah, gambling, uh, most gamblers don't end up coming out in the black, right? That's how the system works. If it if that was true, it gambling wouldn't be a thing. Um so it, it's one of those scenarios where yes, this will have ramifications. Fighters won't be able to make that extra money if they're betting on themselves or their, you know, uh their training partners or what have you. But how much it actually hurts the fighters and it actually affects their bottom line is still very much unknown. We've only had a couple people, which was Krauss and Molina, coming out and saying like, hey, this is how I make a ton of money. This is what I'm doing. And even then, Krauss was doing that one percenters discord and all that other stuff to supplement his income. Like, it's not... We haven't heard a wave of fighters saying this is unreal, blah, blah, blah. We've heard some people say this sucks or like, oh, man, I wish I could bet on myself or I could bet on my training partners, but nothing that's been egregious. Also, this is much more of a dog and pony show than anything else to make people happy, regulators and partners, right? It is still very much possible, just like any other sport, to bet on games you're involved in. It's harder. You have to be careful with certain things, right? But like, especially in today's age, there are there are ways that you could easily bet on certain particular outcomes in a fight that you're involved in and not trip any alarms and probably get away with it. Um, it's risky. And, I, and this is really more about setting up consequences that make it so risk averse that, okay, like, fighters don't want to take that risk, but it's still going to be possible. Um, it's not going to be everywhere, right? But it's it's going to be a thing. But this does not significantly change the landscape any more than the crowd situation did before, which really all it did was, from the UFC perspective, okay, we've got to batten down the hatches with regulation and conduct policy, but that's really the only effect here. Anyone saying that this is going to be the domino in a larger event it's it's not the case unless we find out that Dana White was betting on particular fights with inside knowledge, right? Or high up organization executives, that would be a bombshell that would change everything. But if just Kraus, which it seems to be contained to that, this is just the UFC getting their ducks in a row. 
and saying, okay, we're taking the steps that are necessary for us to make you happy because I don't think the UFC honestly cares. I really don't. I feel like they're like, okay, we got to do this now. We'll do it. We'll make sure we're in compliance, all this stuff. It's like anything else in, in business, right? You know, especially nowadays, there's a bunch of cybersecurity stuff. There's a bunch of, um, you know, uh, like SOC compliance for some of the stuff that I'm in with tech where you got to be up to a certain thing. Um, what else is there? There's ISO 3000 for document. There's, there's all these different standards that companies go through not so much to, especially at, at, in the startup world and some of the tech world, they go through not so much because it's like, okay, this is going to make our business more efficient. It's a cost of doing business of, okay, we've got to protect ourselves from lawsuits. We've got to protect ourselves from losing data to competitors. So we're going to do these things as a cost of doing business. But it's not something that they are readily, you know, like, oh, I really want to be the pioneer in, in making sure our standards are the highest and it really affects our business in a positive way. Most of the time, it just makes things, it adds, you know, extra time to processes and all this other stuff. That's what this is for the UFC. Is, okay, now we got to have, uh, you know, US integrity come in and do this stuff and it's, it's a cost of doing business. That's all this is to them. So it's not going to cause some wide domino effect fighters i there's no way fighters get health insurance out of this unless again there's some new piece that's revealed um it, it's just not it's not going to happen there, there's the cost of giving fighters health insurance and doing some of this other stuff is way too much uh and fighters will complain yes of course they will but it, it's there's no outside regulation either that's that's changing stuff right like you need the ali act to be passed to really make a difference with some of the things that people are are connecting to this betting scandal it's going to be this widespread thing at least in my opinion i see no signs right now this is going to have major shockwave ramifications other than you can't bet on fights anymore which that sucks for the fighters coaches trainers and everybody that like to gamble but it's that's the only effect and that is a big change but it's not anything new this this partnership and everything else is just more further proof to me that this is okay cost of doing business cya you know cover your ass type stuff and again six months from now maybe we hear a couple other fighters are involved in this or something else but i mean ufc policies and, and practices i don't think change I think this is the last change we'll hear from from a while. If Ontario and these other places are saying, yep, you've done enough, now we'll allow wagering again. I, that was the big threat, is if all of a sudden all these commissions shut down gambling completely on UFC events through multiple you know, countries, uh, through multiple states in the US, then you're looking at a big wave of changes. But everybody pretty much has lifted it now at this point. So think that's it um again important step for the ufc to take in order to get gambling back in those provinces in canada but don't expect this to be a big wave and a big you know herald to here comes all these changes because this is how the business works it just is what it is um let me know your thoughts on this let me know if you think i'm wrong i'd love to hear that and, and where you think this might lead but i think this is probably one of the last updates we'll get on this story it's cost doing business and that's about it.
All right, and that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Appreciate you guys for listening, as always. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the like, subscribe, bell notification. If you're listening on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, what have you, uh, always appreciate that as well. Love you guys. If you have any questions about anything we've covered or any other questions you want me to cover um, on this podcast, let me know. Had some great questions last year. Would love to have more questions this year. And I do have some things in the works, I promise. I know I've been saying that for like six months now, but you know, personal life and then other things happening kind of affected it all. But hoping to do some special videos this year, as well as maybe even have a couple guests on, which I haven't had in a while, but very excited about some conversations I've had. I'll keep you in the loop on those. But with that in mind, until next time, y'all, get money. <laughs>